This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Dr. Andrew Selipak, a social media professor in the Department of Media Production, Management, and Technology at the University of Florida, and he researches media psychology and pop culture. Andrew, it's great to talk to you on the radio. Thanks for getting up early for us. Thank you for having me. Andrew, uh, how did you get into being a professor of, of social media? I would think that's a relatively new discipline to be taught in schools. You would think, but uh, actually I've been doing it for a decade now. Uh, in fact, in 2013 uh, at the University of Florida, we started a master's program, an online master's program in social media, uh, and I have been involved with it ever since. So if I take the master the master program, am I going to learn how to get a lot of followers on X, formerly known as Twitter? Is that what I'm going to learn there? Well, I think the problem is that's where a lot of people, at least originally, were saying, you know, why do you even need a master's degree in Facebook? In fact, there was a, a New York newspaper that did a story, I think it was titled exactly that. Right. Um, it, it's not just about how to go viral, because at the end of the day, you know, the easiest way to get famous on social media is to start off by being famous. Um, and instead, it's it's more about, you know, content creation, analytics, understanding how to run a social media campaign. So it, it gets more into the sort of the technical aspects, you know, trying to make your big mark in social media. That's if if anybody could teach it, they would do it and they would already be a millionaire and not give away that secret sauce because the end of the day there is no silver bullet to actually do that. Andrew, let me get you to weigh in on on a few different stories related to social media and I really enjoyed your your column on Threads, which is the Twitter competitor launched by Facebook owner Meta and I want to ask you about that as well. But there was a, a fascinating I don't know, it's more than an article. It's a fascinating piece in ProPublica and basically the gist of this article is that social media apps could actually be fueling violence and homicides, especially among young people. Essentially, it says, as shooting rates among the young remain stratospheric, evidence suggests social media is serving as an accelerant to violence. Taunts that once could be forgotten now live on before large audiences prompting people to to take action. Have you looked at this at all, Andrew? And and do you think that this article has any merit? Well, you know, to kind of go take a step back to some of the things that you were saying originally, um, what, you know, is social media positive, negative? Um, You know, at the end of the day, social media, you can look at it from a, a utopian perspective of all the wonderful things it can do. You can look at it from the dystopian perspective of all the negative things it has done. And that's because social media at the end of the day is a tool, just like any other tool. It's, a, it's no different in some ways from a hammer. You can use a hammer to nail a nail and build a house. You could use a hammer to hit somebody over the head with. So when it comes specifically to that, 
you know, we do know that there are gangs that are making videos and putting videos up and, and claiming their territory and their beefs with other gangs, sort of in a way no different from the old school graffiti you would see on street corners. This is just something that goes viral that is seen by everybody when they place it on social media. And it's whether or not the platforms themselves go to the trouble of taking down those videos for the possible violence that can incur. One of the things that we're hearing more and more about is the attempts by some states and even an initiative to do this on a federal level to limit the use of social media sites by young people, maybe requiring some sort of a a parental consent model, maybe banning it altogether for people of a certain age. What's your view on uh, the idea of legally requiring parental consent for children to use social media? I think it's a a very classic example of you build a 10-foot fence, someone will make an 11-foot ladder. You know, kids are going to get on social media. Everyone's been out to a restaurant and seen how cell phones are the new babysitter, where parents hand over their cell phones so their kid can watch YouTube. Uh, Kids are on social media because YouTube is one of the biggest social media platforms. Kids are on social media from a very early age. So trying to say, well, my child can be on YouTube, Uh, they can watch TikTok, but they can't have an Instagram account. The detrimental effects still exist. So, you know, kids are still going to get their hands on it, regardless of any laws that are passed. So your view is that these uh, parental consent laws are ineffective or unnecessary or both? Will it have some minor positive effects? Sure. Is it going to, again, be a silver bullet that solves everything? No. Um, A lot of times, you know, what we're talking about, I mean, if we're being honest, we're being realistic, especially on a federal level, you know, we're talking about politicians who are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, not exactly sure to the extent they understand social media, the the impact it can have and why it has that impact. Uh, What what they're essentially doing is putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound by saying, well, we're, we're going to pass a law that parents will have to allow their 13-year-old to have an Instagram account. Well, they're still going to be on social media. They're still impacted by social media, even if they don't have an account. Um, So it's really not going to be something that's going to solve it all. And part of that's because at the bottom line is it's not really an attempt to regulate social media and the impact that social media can have, which is really the big part of the equation. Uh, well, that is interesting. And, you know, since you mentioned that, I'm, I'm prompted to ask, I'm sure we have a lot of parents and grandparents listening right now who might be a little concerned that uh, maybe their children are a little too into social media, especially with uh, TikTok, which I've heard more than one person say is totally addictive, irrespective of what your interests happen to be. What tips might you give to parents on how they should be handling their children's social media use or what guidance, I should say, would you give to parents about what they should be doing? Well, that's, a, that's kind of a broad question, because if we but if we set aside TikTok for a second here and the issues that are around that, I think the first thing for parents is uh, 
to understand the platforms themselves. It's one thing to say, well, I'm going to limit my child's use to Instagram or to Twitter or to TikTok, but I don't really know how it works or the impact that it would have. Uh, I think for parents, grandparents, for everybody in general, the first step, it's sort of like with anything, is awareness. What is this platform? What are they, what types of content is on here? What types of content would my child see? And to make that the first step. If you don't understand how addictive something like TikTok could be or why you see certain content on Instagram, or if you don't understand that my child could receive a DM from a random stranger on Instagram, you know, saying, well, I'm, I'm only going to limit them to an hour. A lot of damage can be done in an hour. A lot of damage can be done in 10 minutes. So it's the first step is understanding how the platforms operate, what they do, and what the capabilities are in terms of the content your child may see and what they could possibly do on the platform. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. Bruno. He's your numero uno. You know, it's funny. I uh, I came across a an article. So someone sent this to me. It was from the early 1930s about parents at the time complaining about all the junk that was on the radio that children were listening to on the radio. And essentially, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but parents were afraid that these these dopey radio shows were turning ch- children's brains into mush. 20 years later, those same mush-brained radio people were then complaining about what television was doing to their children. Uh, 30 years after that, you know, it was uh, CDs and uh, Discmans and Walkmans and uh, what, what video games were doing to their children. 30 years later, it's social media. So part of me wonders is, does every generation, does every generation of parents resist what level of communications technology or media their children use, or is social media really different in terms of being a game changer? Social media is different. I mean, that's a hundred percent. You know, yes, you can go back. Well, the way Elvis shakes his hips is going to lead to, you know, teenage pregnancies everywhere. That, that was an, an exaggerated understanding of what was going on. But what we're talking about with social media is as opposed to radio, as opposed to television or, you know, the music in the 1980s that was causing young people to worship the devil and, and, you know, that whole spiel that went on. Social media is not something that people passively consume because they're content creators. They're putting content out there. 
they're not passively consuming it because there's an algorithm that feeds them certain content. They're not passively consuming content that's passing through an editor and a business and a business that has an ethical board that's worried about their bottom line. They're consuming content from anybody in the world, the over 4 billion people who are creating content on social media. So it's so vastly different from all forms of traditional media that it really needs to be viewed as something different and therefore not comparable to the things in the past. Sure. Makes sense. That uh, makes sense. All right. You had a, a fascinating column in The Hill about uh, about threads. Initially, it looked like Threads was going to be able to do what no other social media platform, in spite of many attempts, had been trying to do, which is maybe knock Twitter off its perch. It's no secret that uh, Twitter has had its fair share of uh, of difficulties lately. What is Threads, before we get into whether or not um, it, it took off, what exactly is it? I mean, Threads is in some ways uh, its basic core, just a microblogging social media platform. You know, its focus is on text-based. Um, it you know you can do pictures and videos, but it's a microblogging platform, and it was really a, a a ripoff of Twitter. But you know, in the same way that Parler or Tree Social or Blue Sky or Mastodon, like so many other microblogging platforms in the past has also been a copycat ripoff of Twitter. And why did it take off so quickly? Is it just because there was already such a built-in user base with Instagram or was there more to it? Well, that part of it was easy. It was easy to just move over. You already have an Instagram account. There's 2 billion people on Instagram. You know, you can just quickly port over to using threads. The other part of it was there's been a lot of people who've been upset with Elon Musk and how Twitter, now X, has changed, and they don't like some of the decisions that he's made. They don't like him. They don't like these alternative voices that are now being seen on the platform now that executives at the company aren't throttling down certain views, certain topics. Um, and that it's become more of a public sphere, and they don't like being exposed to these different views and have been wanting a alternative to what Twitter is now or what X is now. So there was a lot of kind of rejoicing at first. I, I was on it the day it was available, um, and there was this rejoicing of this will take down Elon Musk, and this will take down Twitter, and Elon Musk just lost $44 billion. And in the moment when it first released was very much kind of a beta version. It had very bare bones capabilities. And I kind of saw right from the beginning of, yeah, a lot of people are going to use this at first, but just like so many other next big things in social media platforms, it was going to die. So do you think um, Threads is dying? Well, that's what the numbers are playing out the show. I mean, it mm -hmm. had a big, huge news story. You know, 100 million people have already downloaded it in the first week. And then of the 100 million, 70 million are still using it. Well, <laughs> 50 million are still using it. Well, 40 million are still using it. Well, 20 million are still using it. And while that number is, you know, still huge compared to, again, Parler, True Social, Blue Sky, Mastodon, um, you know, to see your user base 
dwindles, you know, so rapidly that, you know, as fast as it grew, it's, it's dwindling just as quickly. And, you know, talking anecdotally to a number of people, they might go on it every couple of days or so at this point, but they've either gone back to Twitter or are just not using a microblogging platform anymore. The movement, the rebranding of Twitter to X, do you think that was effective? Do you think that's going to work? We still have to see what X will be. Um, you know, we know that Elon loves the letter X. You know, there's a Tesla X. You know, he named one of his kids X. Um, you know, he his original company that became eventually became pa- PayPal was called X. He has an infatuation with that one particular letter in the alphabet. Um, what X will be in terms of, you know, an all everything app similar to some of the apps that currently exist in China that aren't really used here in the United States. I don't know if it will ever become that. And part of it is kind of what we saw with threads that people get accustomed to what they're accustomed to. And, you know, threads being an app where you would transfer money, where you would order an Uber, order dinner from, you know, some delivery service, where you would do your shopping. I don't think that's something that people here are really clamoring for, and it's something that they really want, at least right now. Um, Facebook Meta has tried to do something similar with Facebook Messenger, where you could do some of those things, and people just really didn't. You know, we're we're kind of accustomed, if I need to get a ride, I'm going to go to my Uber app. If I'm going to order something, I'm going to my Amazon app. Um, And I think it will take a long time, if it ever happens, where we want to kind of give everything over to just one company like that. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. And if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Dr. Andrew Salapak. He's a social media professor at the University of Florida. Andrew, let me pick your brain on uh, one or two other social media-related items before we let you go. By the way, since we're talking the the internet battle between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, let me ask you about the actual physical battle it looked like we were getting very close to an actual physical cage match between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. Now I'm hearing it may not happen. What are you hearing on that front? There's absolutely nothing positive that can come out of that fight. I do not see it happening at all. Even if it was a really good fight and somehow they do have great MMA skills, they're not professional fighters. They don't have, you know, a career of professional fighting. So the chances of it being a really good fight are not there. Um, you know, years ago, I think Fox had, you know, celebrity boxing. Right. And and I remember a fight. It was uh, William Perry against Minute Bowl. And you just felt bad for both of them after you were watching it. But they were former athletes, at least. We're not talking about former athletes. We're not really even talking about athletes here. So I think it, they both have an understanding that it'd be embarrassing for both of them to participate. So it's not going to happen then? Uh, I, there's, there might be a better chance you and I would wind up in an octagon somewhere <laughs> than the two of them. I wouldn't even bet on myself in that instance, Andrew. <laughs> um, the uh, Let me ask you about this as well. I just saw this yesterday. Oxford University published a giant new study 
that show that found no evidence for the assumption that Facebook causes mental health issues. In your view, Andrew, have the have the claims of social media uses effects on mental health have they been overstated? No. Uh, well, I mean, I, I guess it depends on who's made what statements being made and who's making that statement. Um, you know, I, I I would say that what we do know is that there's a clear correlation between a rise in body image issues, a rise in eating disorders, a rise in depression that corresponds with the use of smartphones where social media is literally with us 24-7, which again is another difference from traditional media. You let, you walked outside the house, that television didn't follow you, but social media does. So we know there's a clear correlation between the two, and there have been plenty of anecdotal evidence, plenty of reports. And, you know, even when Frances Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower, testified before Congress, she discussed how Facebook was aware of how their platforms were negatively impacting, especially young people. So it's as true as we can really say affirmatively. But, you know, if, if we go back to the basic idea that science is never settled and we continue to test, we don't we can't say 100 percent definitively, but I think we could say we have a pretty good belief that it does. Well, that stands to reason that you're making way too much sense for this early in the morning, Andrew. My goodness. Um, I apologize. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to act like a politician and they, make less sense. All right. Forward. Well, since you mentioned politics and politicians, you alluded to the 80 and 90 year old politicians that are going to be regulating uh, platforms that are primarily used by younger folks. But let me talk to you about politics. One of the things that we've heard about the way the, the news feed on Facebook and other social media platforms works is that it tends to group you with people who have political uh, political views similar to your own. And because of that, it makes it so that you don't even get uh, updates, you don't get information that may challenge your worldview. And then you keep that up for a few years, and voila, we're in an era where Republicans and Democrats can't even agree on whether or not the sky is blue. Has social media led to increased political polarization? Yes, but and and this is sort of where you know with everything it's a yes, but um, you know it, it's dependent on the platform. Um, one of the things that can happen on Instagram is you will find yourself sort of in a, a echo chamber, a bit of a, a political bubble. Sure, you're following the politicians that you like. Um, you don't necessarily see a lot in your feed that is content that you would disagree with. Flip side would be Twitter. You know, we are often likely to comment on things we disagree with more than things that we do agree with. So if we're on Twitter, even if we don't follow a politician or a news organization that we disagree with, someone that we do follow may comment on what they have said, may retweet what they have said or re-X, I guess we would call it now, um, you know, and put it onto our timeline that way. And we suddenly get exposed to these things that we disagree with. So it, it is sort of platform dependent. What we do know for sure is that with Facebook, Facebook wants people to stay on the platform. 
Facebook wants people to keep scrolling, to spend time on there, to see advertisements, and they're very successful at it. And what do people like to comment? What do people like to read? Often things they disagree with. So we see that the content that is not just that it's rational partisan, but very emotional partisan, very, you know, it's content that's going to get people angry. And that angry right. content people comment on, they discuss, and because it gets so much engagement, and really what what the algorithms are built on is engagement, and because it gets so much engagement, that shows up higher in our timeline. Because if it's a lot of people are commenting on it, the algorithm assumes you will as well, so it's going to show you that instead of some very objective, neutral, rational point. Andrew, I'm going to have to end it there. A fascinating conversation. I hope we can call upon you again in the future. Oh, yeah, because I, we didn't, you know, we, you, in your opening segment, we didn't even get a chance to talk about dating apps. The, uh, that's, that's right. You got to young you people. Gotta, yeah. Well, well, let's do this again in a week or two. Uh, the, uh, the half hour has just flown by. I appreciate it. I appreciate it, too. Thank you very much. Andrew Selipak. You can check out his website, uh, aselipak.com. That's A S E L E. P-A-K.com. He is a social media professor in the uh, Department of Media Production at the University of Florida. As you could tell, he spends a lot of time thinking about this stuff and uh, and exploring it, writing about it, and, and everything. So he's a go-to guy on all things social media. 